Revelation chapter 1. So this letter has sparked controversy for generations. Martin Luther, when translating the New Testament into German, wrote this concerning the book of Revelation. He said, To my mind, it, the book of Revelation, bears upon it no marks of an apostolic or prophetic character. Everyone may form his own judgment of this book. As for myself, I feel an aversion to it. And to me, this is sufficient reason for rejecting it. John Calvin never preached from Revelation, nor did he ever write a commentary on it either. C.H. Spurgeon, he preached from it though, as did Martin Lloyd-Jones, as did R.C. Sproul. And they held to a view of this letter that most Christians today do not. One that is not the stuff of the Left Behind series. One that does not promote escapism. One that has a single defined main character and theme for this letter. You see, there's something strange that surrounds this letter. But the strange isn't what is found in the letter. The strange is us and how we view this letter. How we read it. What we expect from it. We will, with all the other books of the Bible, understand that the Bible has to interpret the Bible. But not when we come to this book. When we come to this book, we seemingly just jettison the rest of the Bible and look only within this book for the explanation of it, the outline for it. But this was never supposed to be this way. This letter, more than any other letter in the New Testament, draws from the Old Testament. And for that reason alone, just setting aside proper biblical hermeneutics, just for that reason alone, we must not divorce this letter from the meaning and theme of the Bible. And we must allow the rest of Scripture to define, to define and explain this letter. And this letter is personal. Listen to verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things much soon, that which must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of the prophecy and keeps the things which are written in it for the time is near. What we have before us is an enigma, wrapped in a mystery. So why should we study it then? We do so because we're commanded to. Verse 3. And from the get-go, we need to be clear about what this letter, this book, what it is a revelation of. And that is told to us in the first sentence of the first verse of this letter the revelation of Jesus Christ. This letter, just like all the other 65 letters that make up the canon of Scripture, has a single main theme, a single main purpose. The entire canon of Scripture, from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22-21, is all about one thing. And not really one thing, actually, but about one person the person of Jesus, the Christ. 
And this is why you must get Genesis 1-1 right. Because if you get that wrong, you're going to get the rest of the book of Genesis wrong. And if you get Genesis 1-1 wrong, then you're going to get the covenants of God wrong. And you will get the rest of the Old Covenant, or Old Testament, wrong. And you can get your salvation wrong because of that as well. You, you may end up thinking that you chose God, that you are sovereign over your salvation and not Him. And if you get Genesis 1-1 wrong, you will get the first verse of Revelation wrong as well. All of this, from Genesis 1-1, all the way to this last book, is all about one thing. All of it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible is not a self-help manual. It's not a book of a series of stories given to us in order that we should know how we are to live our best life now. The Bible is given to us to tell us about our life, about our eternal life that has been given to us because of the eternal covenant of God. And this book, the book of Revelation, is given to us to demonstrate our life for us and how we are to die. But again, this isn't new just to this book. This is not found only in this book, or even in the Old and just the New Testament. But we as Christians, we have been given a clarion call from our Lord. Listen to Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is why Paul said to those saints in Corinth, I die daily. 1 Corinthians 15.31 And this is the same thing that he said to those saints that lived in that lion's den in Rome. He said there, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Romans 8.36 And that verse, that Romans 8.36 verse, he pulled, Paul pulled, he went all the way back to the Old Testament and pulled that from the Old Testament because it was a truth then as well. He pulled it from Psalm 44. Listen to Psalm 44. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long and we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Verses 20 through 23. And again, when we read Romans, when we are trying to rightly divide that word of truth, we never separate it from the rest of the Bible. We don't look at that letter as any different than the rest of the Bible. So why do we do that here? This letter, the book of Revelation, is not an end times program. This letter is about Jesus Christ. It has given us to know who our only hope in life and death is. And it was written by God, given to His church for our good and His glory. And in studying this letter, it's imperative that we keep in mind that this letter was written by a real man, the Apostle John, to real people, the churches in Asia Minor. 
real people who are going through real things. And God desired to reveal to them and then to us something. Not really something, but someone. Christ. And within the first two verses are markers that are, are we are supposed to be used in understanding the rest of this letter. First, this letter is an epistle. It's a letter from a pastor to his flock, from a man who loved Christ and therefore he loved his church. A man who had suffered for his faith and in fact was at that time of writing this letter suffering for his faith. And it was written to people, real living people who were also suffering for their faith. And this letter, like all the other letters, the epistles, had value to those people in that situation. They didn't get this letter from John, anxiously open up, and then after hearing it read to them, look at each other and say, well, bless his heart. <laughs> Poor John, he's been out in the sun too long. He's just gotten so old that he's not even making sense anymore. This letter, when they got it, it spoke to specific, specific situations that were taking place at that time. Just as the letter written to the church in Corinth by Paul was, it spoke to specific situations. And how often do we forget this fact? How often, when we pick up the Bible and read the Bible, any book of the Bible, our first instinct is to think, Lord, what are you saying to me? What am I supposed to get out of this? After all, it has to be about me. Otherwise, what good is it? How often do we do this with all of the Bible? But the Bible is written to the church. Every letter is written to the church. Every book was initially written for the church in that age, and even those personal letters were. And if you, were, if you are redeemed, then you are part of the church. And so therefore, it is written to you. But again, it was written to specific people in specific contexts. Just listen to three verses from 1 Corinthians just to prove this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that they may be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Again, a specific letter by a specific man to a specific church concerning specific events that were actually happening. And even though they were addressing that church specifically, we, 2,000 years later, we still glean wisdom and knowledge in our walk with the Lord through it. Why? How is that even possible? Why does a letter written to people 2,000 years ago who are long dead in dust, who don't speak our language, never spoke our language, who wouldn't understand our customs or our culture, why would it have any value to us? Because of a truth that's told to us in another letter written by a specific man to a specific man. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And because it is God-breathed, because it is God himself, and because it is God-breathed and God himself, the main character of 1 Corinthians is the same as it is of Revelation. It's Jesus. Even though it's written to specific people about specific situations, just read, run through the book of 1 Corinthians, just run through it and count how many times the name of Christ is used. Over 11 times in just the first 11 or 10 verses of the first chapter. And the only reason that that letter had any value to those wayward saints in Corinth was because it was directing them back to, pointing them toward home, Christ. And this is important as we start to study the book of Revelation because this letter is an epistle as well as a revelation or apocalypse and a prophetic letter. And we'll deal with the meaning of those other two types of literature a little bit later. But first, we just need to understand that this letter, more than any other New Testament letter, draws from and uses Old Testament prophetic letters within it. But again, remember, those Old Testament letters, the prophetic letters, they were just like 1 Corinthians. They were letters written to people. People who were dealing with things, going through things. And they were all letters that applied to those people in that day. And this too will be something that will be, that will be important to remember as we study through the book of Revelation. And there is a point that is being made to us in verse 1. Concerning the nature of who it is that is giving this revelation of Christ Jesus and to who it is being given. <clears throat> the same point that was made by Christ when he said, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. See, we have been taught by our modern-day scholars that when we read the book of Revelation, that we are to take note and prioritize, prioritize words like revelation, prophecy, and even the end, time is near. Those are the keys to getting revelation right according to the spirit of this age. But there is a word that is emphasized twice in the opening verse that is imperative to our understanding this letter. In verse 1, we are told that God gives this revelation of Jesus Christ to John for us. But did you notice that there's an adjective describing the nouns John and us? Did you notice that? Look at verse 1 again. And by the way, this is one of the reasons that I prefer the Legacy Standard Bible because it gets that word right. The word is doulos. Your Bible probably translates it as servant. It doesn't mean servant. It means slave. Here, the beginning of this book, we're not called beloved children even though we are, according to Ephesians 5. We're not called chosen or elect, even though we are, according to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1. And even later in chapter 17, we'll be called chosen of this book. No, the most important of positions is given for us and to us in verse 1. We 
are slaves to God. And many people don't like that kind of language. Most people, they never use that kind of language to speak of themselves. And most Christians most certainly do not act like we are slaves. We, we're American. We are free agents. We are free to be me. I will do it my way, thank you very much. But the Bible is very clear. We have never been free. We were born in sin, in bondage to sin, and we lived bound by sin and in slavery to sin all of our life, John 8, 34. And if God has redeemed you, if he has purchased you off the auction block by the blood of his son, then he has purchased you. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So how do you react to that title? To being called a slave. And more important than that, do you act like one? Or do you bristle at the thought that your life is not your own? Is it a personal affront to your, posa- your persona to be told that you are a slave? Do the commands from the one that you say has purchased you from hell with, the, with his own body and blood, do they bother you? Or do you even care about them? Or do you even care that this title has been given you? Or do you, when you hear the commands of God, when you read them, do you decide how you're going to act about them? Because this is important. God tells us, God loves a cheerful giver. Nope, I'm not going to do that. Check that one on the list of does not apply. Make Christ and his church the most important thing in my life? Sure. Well, not exactly. I'll place that one right under my number one command. Do what I want. Be what I want. Don't forsake the gathering of the brethren. Of course I won't do that. Unless the gathering happens on a sunny day, or a holiday, or a family day, or as long as nothing else has come up, or if I didn't, if I slept, or I went to bed too late the night before, Yeah, I may not make it then either. But other than those things, the church, being the church, worshiping God as the church, that is the most important thing to me. Before you can think that this revelation of Jesus Christ is for you, you must first make sure that you are of Him. Because if you are not a submitted slave to Christ, then at best, you are a runaway slave and you will be punished by your master until you submit. If you've been redeemed by God, made a son of God, then you need to understand that you are expected to act like his son. He's not asking you to do something he didn't do. You're expected to act as his son did and do as you're told and live as you're commanded and die to yourself.
And this is the context that this letter is written in. This is to whom this letter is written to. Does this describe you? Because if it doesn't, then much like those commands that you've decided do not apply, this letter may not be for you. So before you can dig your end times theology into the book of Revelation to determine what it means to you, before we can even get to the context of this letter itself, we must first determine if this letter is even written to us. You see, earlier in his life, John unashamedly called himself the disciple that Jesus loved in John 13, 23. But here in the opening sentences of his letter, he doesn't use that term. Earlier in his life, he marveled at the truth that Jesus loved him. But now, years later, there's an even greater claim that he could make, an even more exalted title that he was given. Slave. Why? Why did God refer to him as a slave? Why was this important? Because he was the disciple that Jesus loved. And John was being conformed more into the image of the lover of his soul, the beloved eternal son, who did exactly as the Father commanded him. And John was being conformed into his image through trials, through persecution, by dying to himself. And this is what is expected of the sons of God, the redeemed of Christ. Listen to another disciple that Jesus loved, Philippians 2, 3-8. We're told, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And God is speaking here to the church. Is this how we see ourselves? Do we understand that being part of his family means that you're part of his church? And you're part of the church for others, not yourself. And then God tells us why, why we are to act this way, why we are to think this way. He says, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the opening verse of this letter, of Revelation 1, proves that it has the same theme as the rest of the Bible. And God desires these dear saints to understand that they, like John, they were all loved by God. And that their torture and their persecution, that wasn't proof that they weren't loved, but it was in fact proof that they were. And the Lord was showing them, once again, the why of everything. Why the persecution? Why the hardship? And he held up as the explanation, the crowning jewel of all things. His son. And as sons of God, as the redeemed of Christ, we should expect to be treated like the Son. John had lived long enough to see this truth fleshed out. He had been in Jerusalem when the Jews stoned Stephen. 
He had witnessed the persecution of the saints by the Jewish leaders at the hand of that tr- the son of that um, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, Paul. He had himself seen the church run out of Jerusalem, hunted down, killed for their faith in Christ. He had not only seen it, he had felt it. Again, John was exiled on Patmos when the vision was given to him. A message given to a slave to be passed on to slaves. A message from the persecuted one to one being persecuted or the soon to be persecuted. And this is why verses 4 through 6 are so important. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. These verses, 4 through 6, these are a doxology. A doxology is a liturgical expression of praise to God. A doxology happens when the glory of God bursts forth from the inner depths of his soul that is overcome by the splendor, the radiance of the glory of God. And out of their lips or through their fingers, praise springs forth. This is a doxology. But here, this slave of God when the angel appears to him with a message from his master, a message that he is to deliver to the seven churches in Asia, he, he John, passes on that message to them. What message did he give to them? Grace to you and peace. What? That doesn't sound like the book of Revelation. Was John just one of those guys who followed the sandwich method of communication. You you know, you've got bad news to give to somebody, so you sandwich it in between some good news on both sides. It's like that person that goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, hey, I see you've lost some real weight there. Good for you. You're looking so much better, Sally. Keep it up. Oh, and by the way, that growth you got on your head, yeah, that's a tumor the size of a grapefruit on your frontal cortex. It's inoperable. But hey, Hats are back in, in fashion now, so you got that going for you. That's not what John is doing. John knew what the saints in these seven churches had gone through. And he was going to reveal to them what they were going to go through. Was this why he starts this message to them in this manner? You better buckle up, buttercups, because you're in for one ride. No, ma'am. He can, with absolute assurance, proclaim grace and peace to them precisely because who this letter is all about. From the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Did you notice the Trinitarian language in describing the one who gives grace and peace? The one who is and is to come. The Spirit and from Jesus Christ. The faithful witness. The firstborn from the dead. The ruler of the kings of the earth. 
This letter, the book of Revelation, is the only letter that speaks of God in such majestic and Trinitarian language. And John describes for us our Savior. And how he describes him is important. It's the same reason why those who are suffering persecution, why they should suffer well, why they are being persecuted, and even how they will be able to endure the persecution that they are going to suffer. Because Christ is the faithful witness. A faithful witness to what? And this is where very often our translations fail us. Because the word that is translated there as witness in the Greek is martus. It's the same word that is used in Revelation verse, chapter 17, verse 6, that says, Then I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Christ. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. That word there in chapter 17 is very often translated, not witnesses, but martyr. Jesus is the faithful martyr. He died for his faith in his Father. But he's also the faithful witness. And he is the firstborn. And this one thing is nothing more than a reverberation of the truth told to us in Genesis 1.1. The truth of the hope of Jacob. The truth of the hope of Joseph. The hope of Job, who thousands of years before John lived, said this about his Redeemer. Job 19, verses 25 through 27. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will rise up over the dust of this world. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. And Job wasn't alone in this understanding of God. When Ethan... Ethan, the Ezraelite, penned Psalm 89. There he spoke of the firstborn as well. Here's Psalm 89. Formerly you spoke in visions to your holy ones and said, I have bestowed help to a mighty one. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established. My arm will also, also strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of unrighteousness afflict him but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. And I shall also set his right hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers, and he will call to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I shall also make him to me my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, my loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I'll set up his seed to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Verses 19 through 29. So how is it that John can tell these saints who had been suffering for their faith, who had lost loved ones, who might themselves soon be dead, how could he tell them grace and peace? Because Jesus is the faithful martyr and the faithful witness, and the, fir the firstborn from the dead. He was not only obedient to his father to the point of death, but he also proclaimed the wonder and the truth of his loving father with everything that was in him, up to and through his last breath when he gave up the ghost. But as Job knew, he didn't die and stay dead. 
He's alive and lives forevermore. And this, this is why Paul could say with all assuredness, why he could proclaim, I die daily. Why Jesus could command us, take up your cross and follow me. Why John could proclaim to the dying and the tortured, grace and peace. Because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And this is our blessed hope. John, before being persecuted and sent to Patmos, before being prepared to receive this revelation of Jesus, earlier had written about our blessed hope. In 1 John 3, he said, See how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. And we are. For this reason, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when He is manifested, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who is hope, has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. And again, so this is where we have to ask ourselves, where is our hope? What good is your hope if it's only for this life? If you think if your hope is only for here, so that Jesus, Jesus died so that you can have an easy life here. Well, Paul has a message for you as well. A message from God. Because if this is what your blessed hope is, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15:19 But Christ was the faithful martyr the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead Do you understand that this truth means nothing to the world they don't care they mock they deny this truth But this truth matters to us because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead and this can only matter to us because of the other thing that he is. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. There's a lie that is being propagated out there that Jesus died. He shed his blood for all humanity. His blood was not wasted on any that were not of the elect. He died for the joy that was set before him. Those that he loves and is released from our sin. And again, the theme of this letter, the reason that we can have grace and peace is the same. It's Christ, the majestic, the awesome, the mighty, the holy. Christ. He is what we are supposed to be focusing in on, to wonder at when we study the book of Revelation. And God wants these saints to know one more thing. He wants them to be reminded about one more thing in light of what was to come. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. What does that mean? Well, God, through John, he wanted these saints to know what Joseph knew that men might hate them, desire evil for them, may even kill them. 
But all things that happened only came from their loving Father. All things. And they were all working together for their good. They were to know the thing that Paul desired us to know, desired all the saints to know. Philippians 1.21, where he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And just to make sure that we understood the point being made in verse 21 of Philippians 29, we're given verse 29 of Philippians 1. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not, also, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And we in our American Christianity, we like the first part of that, but we don't like the second part. But this is the same thing that he tells us in Romans 14, 7 and 9. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be the Lord both of the living and the dead. God, through his slave John, desired to send a message to the slaves of God found in those seven churches. Verses 4 through 6 are the lead-in to that message, a message that we'll walk through next week. But before we do, before God gave that message, he wants to make sure that we fix our eyes on the reason for the message that we keep our minds focused on Him, that as we read what is to come next week and throughout the coming weeks, that we read it in the right context because context is king when it comes to the Bible. And the right context is this, that no matter what is told to these churches, that they are to view it all through the love of Christ and the shedding of His blood to release them from their sin. Context is king. Jesus is king. And this is the main thrust and the key to understanding this letter. And not just this letter, but understanding the Bible and even understanding your life as a Christian. And you're thinking, well, David, this letter may be an epistle, although I've never heard Hank Kennegraph ever say that it was. But you said that it was a prophetic book and an apocalyptic book as well. Well, doesn't that mean that we should read this book, we should open this book and open the newspaper with the Time magazine in order that we can understand it, understand what time we live in? No. Not at all. Let's talk a, a bit about prophecy. Do you remember the biblical definition of prophecy? It's a message from God. And because God is God, he tells the truth concerning things that have not yet happened in order that we can know more about him. And we're all familiar with those prophetic books. We've read them, know something about them. We know the major and the minor prophets and the books that are called by their names. We know the book of Isaiah is probably, probably the most recognized and well-known of the prophetic books. And that book is just like this one. The book of Isaiah was written to a specific people concerning a specific time. And the things that he prophesied, they actually meant something to those people. That letter was written specifically to them, about them. We often don't read those books, the prophetic books, with that kind of understanding. Isaiah was a real man. 
who prophesied from 739 to 681 B.C. to the nation Israel, specifically Judah, a nation that had turned a deaf ear to the Lord. Instead of serving him with humility, the nation of Judah offered meaningless sacrifices in God's temple at Jerusalem and at the same time committed injustices throughout the nation. The people of Judah turned their backs on God, alienated themselves from him, which brought about God's um, pronouncement of judgment. And Isaiah prophesied under the reign of four Judean kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and he likely met his death under the fifth, an evil king named Manasseh. Early Christian tradition identifies Isaiah as that prophet who is spoken about in, in Hebrews 11:37, who was sawn in half. And again, Isaiah was a real man, writing to real people, concerning real events. And in the midst of those events, in the midst of witnessing for the Lord, the Lord put all things in context once again. The Lord there in the book of Isaiah spoke of the most comprehensive prophetic picture of Jesus Christ in the entire Old Testament in the prophecy given to Isaiah, given by Isaiah. This includes the full scope of his life, the announcements of his coming, Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, the virgin birth, Isaiah 7:14, his proclamation of the good news, Isaiah 61:1, his sacrificial death, Isaiah 52:13 through 53:12, his return to claim his own, chapter 60 verses 2 through 3. So even though this book was written to these people, commanding them to repent, the reason for repentance was given. Christ, the coming Messiah, He, the fulfilling of all the covenants, the fulfilling of all prophecy was the reason that they should repent. Again, context is king. Jesus is king. Apocalyptic writing, that's another animal completely. Apocalyptic literature involves descriptions of what we would call the end of the world. They typically depict grandiose, cataclysmic events. The Old Testament books that have them are Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah. They all contain parts of apocalyptic literature. The same is true of some passages in the New Testament, such as 2 Thessalonians 2, Mark chapter 13, and Matthew 24. And of course, we have the book of Revelation. In fact, the Greek word for apocalypse is translated into English as Revelation. And you're thinking, really? God's going to destroy the world? (laughs) Seriously? God's going to destroy the world? I mean, are we really supposed to take this literally? Or is this just one of those scare tactics? Because it seems like this has been being told to us for a very long time, like thousands of years, God's going to destroy the world. I think that God must be just like that bad parent, you know, promising things that he doesn't mean. You know, that bad parent that says things like, I brought you into the world and I can take you out. He doesn't mean it. That parent who threatens punishment but never follows through with it. Is this what we're supposed to understand by all this apocalyptic language? You know that there's another piece of apocalyptic language found in the book of Genesis? If that apocalyptic writing didn't happen, 
If that didn't come to pass, then we can safely take all other apocalyptic writings and just file them under warnings only. But in Genesis chapter 6, an account, and again, this is a, not a story, it's an account, is given to God dealing with his creation and specifically mankind. Verses 5 through 6 of Genesis 6, we read, Yahweh saw the evil of man was great on the earth. But we've gotten better though, right? Right? I mean, people are just, we're, we're basically good. Every thought of and intent of his, of his heart was only evil continually, and Yahweh regretted that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And then the uh, apocalyptic language is given. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. And the question that you need to ask yourself is this. Did that event occur? Chapter 7 of Genesis speaks of that prophet Noah being sent out to proclaim the coming judgment. And in all of that time, the hundred plus years that Noah was constructing the ark, there was never a single call to repentance made. There is only this warning of the soon and just judgment of God on sinners. And the ark stood as proof that what seemed impossible was going to happen. Rain? Flood? What's rain? It's never rained. There's not enough water on the earth to flood the earth. God? What God? Have you seen the city that we built? We are God. And Noah just kept on working. And this letter, and the rest of all those apocalyptic verses, they are nothing more or less than the same pronouncement that God made in verse 7 of Genesis 6. God's just judgment is coming. But when? When's this all going to occur? That's not the issue. That's not the thing that should captivate our minds. The issue should be, does this matter to you? If so, then you will be like Noah. You will obey your master, even though it means dying to yourself, taking up your cross and following Christ. Do you actually think that Noah desired to be a shipbuilder? There was no water. Do you think that that was his childhood dream? Do you think that the toil and the mocking that was his life as he lived daily in the service to his master, that this is the way that he wanted his life to be? But do you not understand that he understood how blessed he was to have found favor in the eyes of God, to be a slave to God, and given the responsibility to prophesy about the coming judgment, just judgment of God. And as we journey through this book, we will use those other books, those chapters with prophetic or apocalyptic language to help us understand what we are being told and to help us rightly understand the meaning behind the things that John writes to us. And this then brings us to verses 7 through 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, 
who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So there are many that claim that John didn't write this letter. And they do so because much of the time the writing is much different than anything else he ever wrote. In fact, the diction and composition of this letter isn't even normal Greek. And the reason for this is because John was writing not just a letter and not just prophecy, but he was also writing an apocalypse. And for this reason, when he quoted the Old Testament apocalyptic verses, such as those found in Daniel 7, 13-14, or Zechariah 12, 10-14, he would use Hebraic rendering of the Greek writing. And verse 7 of Revelation 1 draws from both of those prophets, from Daniel and Zechariah. Listen to Daniel 7, 13-14. I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near to him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And this was the message that was being given to that most powerful king in the entire world at that time. And verse 7 also draws from Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 14. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me who they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for the only son and they will keep weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadarimin in the plain of Megiddo. That verse That verse speaks of the coming judgment on the nation Israel. And this verse, verse 7, lines up with those other, those apocalyptic sections of Scripture. One more, Matthew 24. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And the question when we read that, when we hear that, the question in our minds is this. When? When when does this all happen? Because inquiring minds, they want to know, when is this all supposed to happen? Is this, is this supposed to have happened already? You know, there are those that have hold that it has happened. They're called preterists. They hold that all the events of Revelation already happened. And then there are those that are called futurists. How Lindsay and the Left Behind guys are a great example of these folks. They say that this is all prophecy of things that have not yet happened, at least not fully yet. So which is it? And how do we know how we are to read this letter? How are we supposed to know the meaning of it? Context. Context is king. Which is why the Lord ends the prelude to this message to the saints with the reality of the coming of Jesus and then an exaltation of him. Again, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Saints, our desire in reading through and in studying this book should not be any different than any other. We shouldn't be looking for or looking to or even desiring anything other than Christ, the one who has redeemed us, freed us from our sin by his blood. And again, the apocalypse of John, the revelation of John, isn't about John. It's not even from John. It's all about Jesus, from Jesus, and even for Jesus. And here, in this letter, he finishes the promise that he made in Genesis 3. When he made all things, when he makes all things new once again, when he returns us back to Eden, when we are welcomed home, which is in his loving arms for all eternity. Again, context is king when it comes to the Bible. And Jesus, Jesus is the context of the Bible. Jesus is king. I pray that he would be the thing that captivates your imagination. Not flying monkeys or lions or tigers and bears, oh my. May he reign, not only over your heart and your soul, but also over your mind as we study through his revelation. Again, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. May we seek to know him better because of it. Let's pray.